Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, it's Allison, and welcome back to the podcast. And for this week's installment, we are back to more Q&A. So thank you very much for people who sent in your questions. I've got quite a few of them here today. And I'm going to start with the first one. Hi, Allison. Test taking. My nine-year-old son is beginning to study for and take tests in school. Can you offer some encouraging phrases to say to him while studying before and after the test? Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, besides just the encouraging phrases, I want to just give you some of what we have learned from research, which is how to be a good test taker, that that's actually a skill in and of itself. And one thing that they have learned is that the best way to take a good test is to take a lot of tests. So if the teacher has uh, any kind of example tests, or when they are working on studying, if they want to create their own quiz, uh, they could do it for themselves. Or you could say, give me the material. Would you like me to quiz you? I can write a little test for you. So sample test taking makes you a good test taker. And one of the other things that helps you be a good test taker is to be able to be good with pacing your timing 
and to start with the information that you know the best. So that classic example of read all the questions on the test if you can first and uh, so that you know what's coming and to start with the questions on the test that you are the most confident in answering because we know that success begats success. So if you start, for example, I remember in university, I could sometimes get a little bit uh, overindulged in answering the essay question and then have no time at the end for the other multiple choice questions. So you, there is a strategy in allotting time and starting with where you're strong. Some people are better at the short answer. Some people are better at the essay. How, I'm sure at nine, these are very simple tests, um, but actually coming up with some strategies on how to start off on the right foot, start with what you're strong at, um, skip a question if you don't know it right away, go back to it later so that your your best output is your solid stuff first and to start practicing looking at the clock and pacing yourself from a time perspective, that's learning how to be a good test taker. Now, a lot of people get nervous about uh, performance anxiety in a test situation. It is a specific kind of anxiety. And again, repetition is going to help with that. Um, being prepared is going to make you feel more confident, obviously. So studying in advance. And those are some of the encouraging things that you can say, which is, you know, if you studied the material and you've reviewed it and you've done your practice tests, then you're ready to go. And it's um, one of many things that you'll be handing in this semester that's going to ask about your knowledge. It's not the only test and um, it's not the end of the world test. A lot of tests don't even count on your final report. <laughs> Sometimes the test results are actually thrown away. Not that it means not to take it seriously, but we don't want kids to get the idea that it is a uh, all-important event and catastrophic if things don't go well, that we want to be just, nope, it's just a little check-in. Are you keeping up? Have you learned what's going on so far? And the teacher will look at the tests and they'll look at everybody's performance and they'll be able to know whether everyone's tracking and whether they need to slow down and get people more caught up in the material. So we want to kind of downgrade the importance of what a test really is. And, well, you've studied, you've learned, you've got a good night's sleep, and now we're going to just see where you're at. So it's never about um, acing the test. It's just a form of checking in and seeing how you're doing. So I kind of want to help minimize what can be an overemphasis on what a test really means. So I think those are good uh, prior encouragement skills. And um, then just do your best, right? Uh, just see how it goes. You don't know. People are often fearful that they're not going to be able to perform. And so just, nope, just do your best. We'll see after the fact. So um, as you said, what do we say after the test? I would start with the question, how do you feel about it? How did you feel about the test? Tell me how you think it went. And it's kind of amazing how sometimes a child will think that they really flubbed a test and when they get their mark back, they actually did much better than they thought. I think it's important for teachers to give that feedback right away. It's not really helpful to get a test result so far down after the material that you can't use it as a learning tool. We're supposed to go back, review not just the mark at the top of the page, but actually go back to the questions that you didn't get right and see what if there's any comments that they might have had, like expand more fully or state your resources or whatever, so that it's also a tool for, for learning for the future. And uh, so take it as that, uh, that you can say, great, you got some feedback here. You know, and um, 
And sometimes there are tests that you do poorly on and it turns out that you knew 90% of the material, but the 10% that you hadn't studied turned out to be 80% of what was on the test. And so it might not even be a fair reflection on how you're doing in the class. So I think you need to help them kind of tease out those different nuances and to take it in stride and uh, to realize there'll be many opportunities to to prove how you're doing in school. And, uh, you know, what did you learn on this one? What might you do differently next time? Do you think you need to prepare differently? And it's just an opportunity for reflection. So I think all those things uh, are, can be very encouraging to kids. So good luck with that. <laughs> uh, and of course, if you have a child who's really quite stressed in, in test situations, sometimes accommodations can be made that either they can instead do the test in a different room where they don't have distractions or they're given more time because uh, time pressures can uh, impede some anxious kids performance so if it's just sort of open-ended just write it till it's done and don't worry about the clock some of those accommodations for really stressed kids can help as well and you might have to work with your student and the and the teacher to work out a good combination there so good luck next question I listen to your fabulous podcast and always look forward to hearing your advice. I have some parenting concerns that I hope you can address on your podcast. I started following your democratic parenting approach about 10 years ago when it was very apparent that I had a strong-willed, discipline-resistant child. Your parenting advice has been incredibly effective over the years. So thank you for that. I'm glad to continue being a help for you. Her question today is, My son is now 15 and his personality is changing. We're seeing a lot of moodiness and he is having angry outbursts, often directed at his younger brother. He has been short-tempered with this as well and often he is rude. I want to teach him how to better manage his emotions. This behavior is relatively new and I'd like to nip it in the bud. Do you have any advice? Well, the thing about the teen years, <laughs> and there's lots of podcasts that we're, that we're focusing in, and I have a, a teen group uh, specific for teens on my Facebook page, because a lot of people come to Edlerian theory and to my parenting classes when their kids are young and you're learning how to be a parent and you learn about consequences and, um, you know, when-then statements. And a lot of these things are still really wonderful, but truly there is a transition in we have to change our parenting strategies as we enter adolescence. And there's also a biological part. Not that I want to dismiss everything as they'll grow out of it. I don't think that's true at all. I think it's an important time of development and parents have a very important role in in shaping the relationship and, and addressing behavioral concerns. But I do want us to know that there are important changes happening at a biological, physiological, hormonal level in adolescence. Uh, the brain is rewiring. It is naturally a developmental point where kids are supposed to be finding their autonomy, testing limits, finding their identity is different from their parents, putting a greater importance on social belonging in peer groups outside the family. Of course, they've got all the other stressors of my body's changing and my voice is changing and why is hair growing here and, and suddenly we I have a sex drive. And so there are stressors also that oh, sometimes we forget and maybe we need to do a little walk down memory lane and try to remember yourself what your adolescent years were like. And I think about it, the development as sort of like the way that we see that a a caterpillar has to go into a chrysalis and then comes out as a butterfly. Please don't feel that the personality changing, it's not, I, I wouldn't say it's personality changing per se. And what I mean by that is we know that your core personality or lifestyle is is the more accurate Adlerian term. It's a slightly bigger concept than just personality. But your basic way of going through life 
really is established by the time you're probably about five, six years old before you start entering into formal education, actually. And so unless you have a traumatic event or a religious epiphany or some or therapy, something big has to happen for a personality to change. So our personality doesn't really change in adolescence, but we see some of these these other expressions of development that uh, you might have had a very sort of pleasing child and you didn't really have to worry about discipline and now they find their own voice. I don't think that's a change in personality. I think that's a developmental piece. But regardless, we still have to live in a family with people and we still have to demand that or set as an expectation that wouldn't we like to all live harmoniously and cooperatively and live in a household that is not one that's filled with disrespect in any direction, not disrespect from parents to child, but not not disrespectful within the family as well. And so you have to reinforce that as an ideal that you want to uphold for the family. And, um, and then it's about sort of picking your battles in a certain uh, sense in that when I hear my child's tone, I might just ignore the tone and just respond to the content of what they're having to say. And I don't necessarily have to be all reactive and take it personally that they're talking to me with a little bit of an edgy tone. If it totally dips into disrespect, I might say something like, you know, I, I will not stand in the face of disrespect. Can you try saying that again? Or, you know, I walk away in the face of disrespect. But if they're going to, you know, bemoan that tonight I serve them meatloaf, I might just disregard and not get hooked into an argument about it. I might just simply say, I'm sorry you don't like tonight's dinner and carry on. And I'm, I don't need to put more energy into things that I don't want to see repeated. The things that we pay attention to, we get more of. So I don't want to really uh, pay too much mind on some of those uh, less than pro-social behaviors. And instead, I want to look to strengths and contributions and cooperation and focus more on those. I might say something like, in a private moment, never publicly. Teens don't like to have ever their uh, shortcomings amplified by making it public. But I might say privately, hey, is everything okay? You didn't seem yourself at dinner tonight. Seems like you're carrying a bit of a burden. Is everything okay? Anything you want to talk about? And I'll also be totally fine if they say, nope, nope, don't want to. Uh, but in terms of the sibling relationship, it's interesting that there can be years where siblings find more things in common. And then developmentally, you might find that your siblings feel like they're farther apart. And so it may be that as he's entering into adolescence and has a great priority on looking mature, doing mature things, that the younger sibling who suddenly seems immature, very pesty, a bit of a tag along, that there's less tolerance for some of that because they're all about wanting to be identified with being older. Regardless, the sibling relationship is still one that our kids need to broker and manage between them. And so I really want to empower them to take ownership of whether they decide to be kind and caring to one another or whether they uh, want to move things to escalation to, to conflict. So I'm not going to step in and rescue and say, hey, be nice to your sister or, hey, you know, you need to include your sister. Why are you cutting her out of the fun? I really want the two of them to be able to broker that 
um, between them. So picking your battles, ignoring, not taking everything so, uh, you know, so, t- so personally, um, but also holding people accountable. You know, if you, if you make a mess, you got to clean it up and digging in and finding out whether or not there is uh, anything else going on for them that uh, is behind some of this. You have to remember that our emotions are the uh, emotions are something that are not only biological, but it's also a choice that we activate our emotions in line with our goal that we're trying to achieve. And so if we're trying to create distance, then some of that rudeness is going to create that uh, that distance as well. So I hope that's a little bit of help for you there. And please jump on my team group and listen to some of the other team podcasts. Or certainly it's a huge, it's a huge topic. Uh, hi there. Next question. I've recently found out about you and your podcast and have since been blasting through the episodes. I love finding little nuggets that I can apply to my family now and one that I plan to pocket for later. Bracket, parenting teenagers makes me nervous. (laughs) So thank you for your help so far. My question relates to how to best prepare my four-year-old for her flu shot. I suppose this also extends to how best to deal with any potential painful procedure. Her most recent vaccine didn't go well, as they have in the past, and we had an incident with a splinter this summer which turned into lots of screaming from, from her, fear, and not being able to sit still. She's a rough-and-tumble girl, and I've been surprised at how little she complains about painful-looking injuries, but with certain things I'm learning, she doesn't seem to cope well. I don't believe it's the pain of the procedure itself, but more the fear of it that she is having the most trouble with. I'm a nurse and have no fears of these types of things, so I don't think it's coming from any nervous energy from me. But I would like to help her find the courage to deal with these eventualities. We also role play with medical toy kinds of things so often, so she's familiar with the various ways of getting medicine. Uh, Hopefully, if we start early, that we can help navigate annual shots like blood work, COVID swabs, a little bit more gracefully. Well, let me start by saying I think it's really wonderful that you've got the uh, play involved there. Kids learn through play, so you've got the medical toys. And I think playing doctor, nurse, uh, patient with stuffed animals is really wonderful. One of the ways that you can amplify that is to use the play with her and do one of the reenactments and don't do it in a way that she thinks that you are specifically talking about maybe the splinter incident of the summer or whatever, um, but maybe just show the animal being distraught. And uh, the little stuffed animal is like, no, no, I don't want to get the COVID test. No, no, I don't want to get the needle. I'm scared. And so if she can play the role of the person who is administering the needle, the COVID swab, or whatever it might be, and see how she, what she says. What does she do to calm the little bunny who doesn't want to get the test? So part of that's going to give you some intellectual knowledge into what she perceives as being soothing so that when she's actually now in the doctor's office, she's not really the little bunny, it's just her. Um, but you've heard her say things like, it's okay, it won't hurt long. And so now you know the kind of language that she would like. And the other thing is, that when we're in play, kids are more 
more open and sometimes more verbal about what's going on psychically. So you might even whisper in your ear and say, what do you think the bunny is so afraid of? Why do you think the bunny is so scared? What is it about that needle that he's so upset about? And she might whisper back, I don't think he likes how big the needle is. So she might not say to you, I don't like the size of the needle, but you might hear it in play when you're using this little little side talk, little the narrator talking to the characters. So if that's helpful, uh, you can try doing that um, and, uh, and see what you learn, and then you can apply it to her in real-life situations. But I think the other thing, too, is to be really honest with our kids that when we honor the fact that it is scary to get something stuffed in your nose. And yes, it is going to hurt for just a second. We're not lying. If somebody says a needle's not going to hurt and then you get pricked with a needle, you're going to think, I am never listening to that person again. You're supposed to be my protector and you just lied to me. So I think it is much fair to say, yes, it is a little bit scary and nobody really likes to get pricked and have pain and it is going to hurt for a little bit. But you know what? We need to get it done and lots of people get this done and I think you are just as brave and courageous as all the other people that get needles and I know that you can dig down deep and you can find your courage. The other thing that I've learned, now you're a nurse, I don't know if you've ever done pediatric nursing, but I often refer to some wisdom that I came into from some pediatric nurses who say that um, it is for a child who say has diabetes that has to get insulin shots. It is not nice to know that you've got to get this done every day, but one of the ways that they can win the cooperation and calm uh, juvenile diabetics is to give them choice. That when you feel like somebody is, let's for lack of a better word, say attacking you with needles or attacking you with a swab down your nose, it is very disempowering and it feels very violating. So what we need to do is to increase their sense of agency in the situation. And so by giving choice then that helps. So it might be, would you like to uh, get your insulin shot in the kitchen or do you want to have it in the living room? Do you want to have it in your arm today? Do you want to have it in your thigh? So anytime that you can add some choice, and it might be, we're going to the doctors and I know it's going to be scary and it's going to hurt. Um, would you like to sit on my lap or in the chair? Would you like to take your stuffed bunny or do you want to take your little blankie? Anything that gives them a sense that they're having a little bit of say in sculpting, in the event is going to make them feel um, more in control, and that's going to be helpful. I think it's also important that we don't want to give a young child too much lead time so that it allows their mind to, to think and to start creating a bigger concern than it needs, but neither do I want to surprise them. I don't want to just show up and say, oh, we thought we were going to go to the grocery store, but we're going to just stop at the drugstore and get our flu shot. That's like a little bit like being surprised and they didn't get to mentally prepare. But neither do I want to say, you know, sometime this winter we have to go get a shot. And then they're like, oh, now all I can think about is the shot. I don't know when it's coming. So we need to find that sweet spot, you know, however you know your child best, whether that's a couple days or whether that's a week, but a little bit advance warning. And then maybe to say something of what to expect. If they've never had a needle, if they've never had a COVID, we're going to go, we're going to wait. The doctor's going to take us in his room. He's got this little swab. This is what a swab looks like. He's going to stick it down your nose. It won't be in there for more than a second. And then they get that opportunity to do that mental rehearsal and, and know what to expect. So um, it is just to, for us to know that 
there is a wisdom of the body that says we shouldn't be poked and prodded and things shouldn't go into us. So it's a real natural anxiety to have. But uh, if we approach it right, you should do well. And remember too, from just a point of judgment, if she really freaks out and you're trying to calm her down, don't feel judged as a parent. You're, you're only judged by, not by your child's reactions and your child's behavior. You're being judged by how you're doing it, staying calm yourself and if you're calming and soothing. So just focus on your own behavior. Don't don't feel judged um, by how dysregulated they get. I think all of us can appreciate it. it's a scary thing for uh, for a child. All right, next question. Can you talk about supporting kids during school applications? My son is preparing to take his SSAT in December, and it's causing so much stress. He wants to go to a particular private school, and he's only applied to one. And I want him to take responsibility for his studying. It's a lot of money, and it's not. And if he's not all in, I'll save for retirement. But sometimes he gets so discouraged, he's crying, and he wants to give up. Oh, yeah. So I can see this is something that's really important. Stress is something that can be our friend if we use it appropriately. So the idea, if we think about the arousal stress curve, it's like a normal distribution. If you're not stressed, aroused enough, our performance dwindles. We're not sharp. If our uh, stress is just at the right amount, then we find we get the best performance. It is the reason why we have butterflies in our stomach when we have stage fright before going on stage. When we have just the right amount, we are hyper-focused, we stop digesting food, we get super concentrated, pupils change. Like It's amazing biologically, but it is putting you in performance mode. And so you end up having a great performance or a great soccer tournament or whatever. However, if you tip over and the stress gets too great and you get overwhelmed, then we have a deterioration in performance. So to your point, he's sometimes getting overwhelmed. So how can we reduce the stress enough, not completely take it away, but keep him in the performance zone so that he does really well? So I would maybe tell him about that distribution of stress and tell him there's no way to take this test and study for this test without some stress. That's part of the performance package that you're signing up for. But if the reducing the stress is coming from the added pressure that he feels like he has to succeed or else, if he feels like, oh, oh, I'm getting the story from my parent that if I'm going to, that if they're going to spend all this money on me and I better do well and don't blow my retirement money, then it becomes uh, a real conditional kind of strings attached. I'll pay for your school, but you really have to do well and don't make mistakes and don't disappoint me and don't waste my, and I think that part although it may be your truth, is not helpful for him to know. I think what we instead want to say is, look, we don't know how you're going to perform. You have not gone to this school before. You've not gone into this program before. It's anybody's best guess, but we want to help you reach your goal, and I want to support your goal, and I can tell by your studying, and I can tell even by your nervousness that you're invested in this goal. So all you can do is your best, and I've got your back, and if you'd like to have me provide some structures for you, that's great. But yes, studying is your responsibility. And I know that can feel overwhelming. So if you need me to help break it into small steps, uh, or do anything to support you around that, I can't study for you. I can't crack the whip and make you study. You need to be an independent learner. And this needs to be your, your, your own personal goal. But I am happy to provide some scaffolding and support. But you can't take over the job for him because, as you say, when he goes off to school, you're not going to be there. This has to be his to win. 
And so how wonderful that he can call on you as an ally and a resource, but not a takeover Tommy who who does this. And if he can't get the nerves calmed, then it's all right. It just we'll see what we'll see what his results are. And the proof will be in the telling. And sometimes you can go at things multiple times. Is he allowed to write it multiple times? Could he decide, oops, I only applied to one school. I didn't get in with the marks that I needed. I need to go to a different school. Can I get my marks up and transfer? I think one of the problems with dealing with this age group is they don't have the wisdom of how long life is. Everything feels so final. Everything feels like if I blow this, my whole future is done. And they put this incredible pressure on anyone given um, aspect to fate them to their future. So I think the more you talk about all the different journeys that people take, all the different things that they didn't do so well on, recovered from, had to change tactics, go about a second time. My daughter started at one one university. It wasn't for her. Had to drop out halfway through. Uh, had to, to reconsider what she was trying to accomplish, whether it was the school, the program, whatever. And the more she started talking to other people, she realized lots of people make readjustments. Lots of people start on one path and switch to another. And even after you finish your schooling, people start on one career path and tact again. So, help to minimize the importance of this one singular event and um, and maybe downgrade that importance on how much you've financially invested in it, I think that is probably quite stressful. All right, next one. Hi, Allison. I'm struggling with a 14-year-old girl that started freshman year virtually. Like many other kids, she doesn't have any friends and is struggling being at home and only family to talk to. Any advice on how to become social while not being able to get out with COVID-19 restrictions and while avoiding social media issues as well? I appreciate any assistance. Oh, it's a tough year. For, for all kids, absolutely. But when you're starting freshman year and uh, we know that that in the adolescent years, being embedded in a friend group is su- super important and likely you're going to get that at school. And online learning with students that you did, didn't already know going into the school year, it does not really give you a great opportunity to bond in the same way. And so what I would say, and I'm hoping that there are some classroom teachers that are listening to this, that for workplaces that are working remotely, for schools that are now working remotely. Yes, we're doing it through this interface, but we really need to put some time and effort into doing some team building. Schools in general used to be much better at this. You know, back in the in back in the day when we weren't so concerned with standardized testing and and um, we were more leisurely about spending the beginning of the school year building up that classroom bond. And you spent time talking about yourself and what you did on your summer vacation. And some schools had the luxury of taking kids on a camping trip before they even got in the classroom. And we don't spend enough time on this anymore and the virtual world just that much less because we don't have um, experience with it. But if I can encourage the teachers or for the parents to reach out to the teachers to say, have you thought about going on to some of these team building activity sites that they have for corporations that are using Zoom as an interface to keep the connection, build the connection, build the bond, build the community that's happening in the classroom uh, through some of these activities, uh, I think it would just be wonderful. The next thing is to ask her, does she have the opportunity to make some friends through school, through the virtual interface by starting or participating in study groups? Or can the teacher assign people to group projects? I know I know not not every kid my kids hated group projects. I hated group projects. But the truth is when you do things in common, when you work on tasks together, 
that is a way of creating mutuality, commonality, common experience. And then in the background, you end up while you're working on your project, you're also getting to know people. And you might carry on that conversation offline, you know, friend each other on the different social media platforms and have the conversation uh, grow. I think it's also a way that we can um, encourage them to stay in touch with their old friends. Maybe you haven't connected with the new group of people, but where are your old friends? And can you uh, rely on them for some social support as you make your way into new friend groups? Uh, I also think teams and activities with like-minded people. And what I mean by that is school can be pretty focused around the academic curriculum, but it might be that your child really likes cooking or really likes sewing or really likes robotics or whatever it might be. And if the school doesn't have that as an elective or as a, uh, an extracurricular activity, then they can look for that in online and find out where are all the like whatever Harry Potter geeks? Where are all the people that love knitting and join that community online so that you find your people around those real, those passions and you could find all kinds of friend groups there. I think it's uh, something that is absolutely solvable with a little bit of strategy and um, and if you have to reach out to the school uh, and, and get them kind of campaign for the true need for that, then um, have them listen to my podcast. Maybe I can, maybe this will encourage them too. All right, moving along here. I am the mother of a six-month-old baby. I have read two of your books, Breaking the Good Mom Myth and Ain't Misbehaving. I'm very impressed with them, and thank you uh, for introducing me to Adlerian philosophy. Honestly, I like the method. You're talking in your books about leaving your children to play, enjoy, and investigate alone. I mean, without my help at home. My question is that my little daughter always wants my attention and to be with her while she is playing with her toys or learning new abilities. Could you please advise me how to encourage her to play without my presence around her, please? Um, or when I need to leave her playing without me is the right time. Thank you for your time reading my email and your help. So let's remember that she's six months old. And learning to uh, play independently and on your own is something that does have a developmental um, scale to it. So I would say that honestly, for a six-month-old, the majority of their time, they want to be socially interacting, even if that just social interaction can just be as simple as when I smile, she smiles back at me, or when I'm in the kitchen cooking, she's fascinated by the activities that I'm doing with the blender and the oven and the clanging of the pots. That's still engaging and socializing as you're talking or singing or whatever, but you're still getting on with your day. To, to sit completely independently is really something that comes later in life for sure. And I would say it's six months, maybe five minutes of independent play. My father tells the story of being in a, a baby and his mother would put a little bit of syrup on his fingers and then give him a feather, honey or syrup. So it was something sticky. And he would like move the feather from one finger to the other finger, from one finger to the other finger. And he was so fascinated with that, that that would amuse him. That would certainly keep him engaged and captive, you know, for for five minutes. So I don't really think that you can leave them alone. You know, you're looking at maybe 15 minutes of independent personal engagement at 12 months, uh, maybe 15 to 20 minutes at 18 months. So you're really not getting big chunks of time at, at this age group. Now, I would say in terms of the demanding attention, um, that we can still get up. We shouldn't have to stop everything we're doing and just stop our lives to play with kids. That think about any time back in history where, you know, 
you had to go hunt for food and you had to pick berries and, you know, your kid would have come with you on a papoose or something so you could get your work done. But you couldn't stop everything you were doing just to stop and play with kids. That is an artificial model of what we're supposed to be doing. We are supposed to make meals and we are supposed to fold laundry and all those things. And so I I want you to be able to get on with all the things that you need to do and not to stop and play with your child. But if you bring her along and talk and play and just demonstrate what you're doing, that's fine. And when you really need time on your own, you know, and she's fussing, it's okay to have a baby that is being loved and cared for and attended and you're making dinner and you've got a hot pot in your hand and she's crying to be picked up for you to say, I'm not available right now even though she might not understand the full language. I'm not available right now. Mommy's cooking dinner. I have a hot pot and I can't hold you right now. I have an important task to do. But as soon as this is done, I know you can wait for me. I'll get to you as soon as I have this job done. And so she can sit and demand that you do more, but you're being loving, you're being caring, you're being social, you're being engaging, you're making eye contact, you're showing her a smiling face. So she can demand that she wants more, but you are being a good mother by getting on with what you need to do and making her have patience and wait for you. So I hope that uh, I hope that is helpful and answers your question. And yeah, you got some time until they're completely playing on their own. For older parents, I would say again, set them up because often they don't know what to do. You know, I'm going to be busy in the kitchen making supper. And so this is your independent playtime. What will you do while mommy's busy in the kitchen? And then say, will you play with your puzzle? Will you play with your dollhouse? And get them started on the activity and say, okay, you're on your own. Um, Enjoy your playing and I will check back in with you when I'm done. So they've got a little bit of direction on what they're doing and start with a small amount of time and just keep building the increments as they age. So thank you very much, everyone, for your questions. And again, um, you can send them in at the hashtag Ask Allison. My email address is in the show notes. And I'm very excited that next week I have an interview with Erica M. For people in Canada, you will know her originally as a much music DJ and certainly later in life, the founder of the Yummy Mummy Club. And we're going to be talking to her about her experience of uh, starting a parenting community and her own uh, transitions from having a very great parental influence in her childhood to the woman she became as a business person and then becoming the mom of teens and the struggles that came with motherhood and dealing with mental health issues and um, the, the need for support and community around that. So it's a great interview and I look forward to sharing with you that interview next week as well. Till then, take care. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast, so thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.